Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with John Locke, the editor of Queen of the Gangsters, Story of Margie Harris, uh, Volume 1, Boardwalk Boardwalk Empire. Uh, John, thanks for being here with me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. John, I'm hoping you can start by talking a little bit about how you became interested in Margie Harris and putting together this collection. Well, I have a um, a boutique um, publishing imprint, if you will, called Off Trail Publications, um, and I print uh, anthologies of obscure pulp stories, generally from the 20s and 30s, and I'm fascinated by the phenomenon of the pulp magazines uh, and the lives of the of the authors. The authors often were really fascinating people. I'd say half of them are people who just sit in a room at a typewriter. The other half were people who had authentic experiences that they ended up um, funneling in, into their fiction. Uh, and, and in those days, the the fiction market was really booming, especially the 20s. Um, it was an English major's dream. You know, you always think, okay, I've got my degree now. I'm going to go out and get paid for writing fiction. And you find out how really hard that is. In those days, it was, it was, it was actually easy. I'd say the 1920s were the, the best time in human history to make money selling fiction. Real boom market. And then when the stock market crashed, um, the rug was pulled out from under that. And the fiction markets continued, uh, but it was more of a struggle. The, the The money went out of it in different ways. So that's kind of the the framework or the background uh, for what we have here. Um, at the end of the twenties, um, an ex Greenwich Village poet named Harold Hersey started a string of uh, his own pulp magazines, and um, several of them were related to gangster fiction, if you can believe that. They were magazines like gangster stories, racketeer stories, mobs, um, and they were full of uh, just gangster stories. And this was running at the tail end of Prohibition. Uh, the Gang magazines were very popular from, say, about 1930 to 32, and Prohibition, of course, ended in 33, but they had kind of run out their string at that point. It's a very specialized genre. If you read the stories, it's uh, it's really like entering an alien world. They speak English, but the vocabulary is gang lingo. Uh much of which is authentic, some of which was made up by the authors and sounds authentic. 
Uh, but in any case, it's very entertaining writing. Um, and uh, I'd put out a couple of uh, uh, gang pulp collections, and a friend of mine said, hey, uh, uh, we ought to do a Margie Harris uh, collection. Um, and so I got together with a, uh, uh, a science fiction writer named Dave Bischoff uh, from Eugene, who is, who is now deceased. And he and I put together the Margie Harris collection, and we we probably read, say, 15 or 20 stories, uh, picked the best ones, and uh, put that in, in the book. And a lot of the gang pulp fiction was really not well written. It's uh, hard to follow. It um, definitely is in the mold of anyone can sell fiction these days. But Margie was different. Um, she was a very smooth writer, good plotter. Um, started with longer works. You think you you would normally get into that market by selling short stories, you know, 5,000 word stories or shorter that would go into the back of the magazine to, to fill out the pages. She, on the other hand, her first story was published in the, I think the May 1930 gangster stories. It was a novelette length, meaning about 20 to 30,000 words. So that shows she was not starting from scratch. Um, so that brings up the question, who was she? Right. So you sort of start out um, before you ha uh, have the stories in the collection, talking a little bit about Margie Harris. And so I want to talk about her because there is such a limited knowledge of her. So could you talk a bit about what you do know about Margie Harris, sort of what you learned about her? Sure. Um, uh, one of the nice features of the pulp uh, magazines was that the readers would get interested in the authors and the magazines would publish biographical material, which if you find it now is really useful in tracking down uh, the author's uh, origins. Uh, and in fact, um, that happened in gangster stories. She was bylining the stories Margie Harris and we have no way of knowing if that's her real name or a pen name. Uh, and unfortunately, it's a fairly common name in, at that time, there were probably 130 million people in the country. There might have been thousands of Margie Harris's uh, from coast to coast. But the, the, the readers started writing the magazine and saying, you've got to be kidding. There's no way the author of these stories uh, could be female because the stories are are ultra violent, ultra hard boiled, lacking in sentiment, um, very raw, and they they do give the impression that the author is fully acquainted with the underworld, the violent uh, underworld that prohibition created. So. Um, Hersey got back to Margie Harris and said, what can you tell us about yourself? And uh, she sent in a letter that might have been about 500 words long, sketching out her background, um, said she was a newswoman, uh, a reporter, 
um, also hinted that she might have been involved in law enforcement, although I think that's probably not the case. You find in her fiction clues that she was involved in the newspaper business because uh, she'll talk about some event in a story, uh, a murder, for instance, and then say it got a three-column streamer on the on the, the Daily Herald. And that's kind of newspaper talk for the size of the headline. Um, so yeah, that bit of inside newspaper lingo pops up here and there. She did kind of sketch out um, her background in the news business. Uh, she mentioned a bunch of famous cases uh, that she'd reported on where she got to know the famous criminals involved. And so those are outstanding clues. So I tracked down every one of those that I could, and they broke down into two distinct phases. Uh, One set of crimes took place in the Bay Area, Northern California, uh, and would have been in the news from, say, maybe 1910 uh, uh, up to 1915 in that bracket. Uh, and then the second set of cases were Chicago gangland cases that occurred in the early 20s. So we have two solid places where she had to have been. So then it's great. We just need to find one person who was in both of those places at those times working in the newspaper business. And um, that didn't work out as well as I had hoped. Um, In those days, uh, when you wrote a newspaper article, it didn't get your byline. It was just simply the newspaper's product. uh, less true today, you read the Post or the Times, and, and you'll see the author's name at the top of the reportage, um, or the reporter turns up on TV to talk about the story later. There was nothing like that then. Um, newspaper reportage was, for the most part, anonymous. Uh, she also mentioned doing some Sunday features, you know, big say, photo-illustrated, full-page stories, which were less day-to-day reporting, but um, more in-depth reporting. I couldn't find those either. I couldn't couldn't find any, uh, any reporter named Margie Harris or any woman reporter with a byline uh, at that time in uh, San Francisco or, or Chicago. So, completely ran into a brick wall there. Um, I still review the search uh, from time to time, but I just haven't made any further progress on it. Now, she did have kind of uh, a second uh, public writing career, um, and that was when the Hersey sold the gang pulps uh, to another company in about 1932. And they started a true crime magazine called, uh, um, I think it was called American uh, Detective Cases. And Margie showed up there. Uh, Those aren't completely indexed, but I found 
seven of her articles in that magazine, uh, including one from 1934 where she reports on uh, um, the Bonnie and Clyde case. Uh, But anyway, the true true crime was its own specialized uh, um, world. And one of the features... One of the features of true crime reporting was that you had to offer the magazine something that hadn't been in the daily newspapers. So that might be uh, investigative facts about the case or or, uh, crime scene photos that the newspapers hadn't gotten a hold of. And the way you wrote that kind of article was you had to have friends in the police department. So most uh, true crime reporters wrote about crimes in their own locality. Um, and also that kind of writing didn't pay enough to allow you to travel. So if we look at the locality of Margie's true crime stories, uh, uh, three of them were set in Houston, Texas, uh, three or four of them, and another few were within, say, 100 to 200 miles of Houston. So that makes it a near certainty that she lived in Houston or the vicinity. So, okay, that's another good clue. Maybe we can find a Margie Harris from the Houston area and identify her, but that ran into a brick wall um, as well. Um so the say another clue would be how old would she have been and if we assume that she had covered the san francisco cases in the early decade the first decade of the century say she was a reporter in her 20s then that would have given her a birth date around say 1880 which means she would have been around 50 years old when she Uh, sold that first story to gangster stories. And that's very plausible that perhaps she she married, settled down, was outside of the newspaper business at that time, needed a source of income, and so tried these gangster magazines and just uh, proved to be a hit. Uh, She wrote a bunch of stories for the uh, gang magazines, and then when they went away after a few years, she started appearing in detective pulps, uh, writing detective fiction, some with a Texas setting. And her last known story is 1939. So she either gave up writing uh, or died at that time. Just uh, just don't know. But that's, that's a good outline of uh, who Margie Harris was. So do you, it seems like there's lots of brick walls and do you have thoughts on who she could be? You know, do you think she was definitely a female writer at this time? Because as you said, this is often looked at as a male genre to write in. Um, Do you have any kind of thoughts on this or are you just sort of, this is what I've been able to find and, or do you have any, or maybe conspiracies? I don't know if that's the right word. (laughs) I, she, she does. um, 
Yeah, she says she's female in the letter she wrote to uh, Gangster Stories. I forget her language. And I don't have any reason to doubt that. I don't think there would have been an incentive for a male reader to, uh, or a male writer to publish under a female name. Uh, that That's kind of going against the grain. If it had been a romance fiction magazine, then that would have been more likely. Or coming back the, the other uh, direction, if a woman wanted to write for like a male-oriented genre like that, they'd be more likely to either take a male name or just uh, sign a story using their initials. Uh, and I've seen that phenomenon that, that uh, say, there was a very good fantasy science fiction uh, writer named Catherine L. Moore. And for a long time, she signed her stories C.L. Moore. And so that was a discovery down the road that she was she was actually female. Is Margie Harris, one question, you know, as I was looking at this and reading, looking at her, is she one of the only females pulp crime writers? Like, were there other examples of women who were writing in this genre at that time? Or is she sort of the one that really stands out? And ha- it also seems like she has a, um, a career. Uh, a lengthy career, right? She didn't write just one or two pieces and then was done. She continued to write. So is this really, um, is she very much an anomaly in this way? Uh, Yeah, she is. um, uh, Most of the writers in that genre, that very specialized genre of of gangster fiction um, were male. And so, yeah, it's very. It was very arresting to see uh, uh, a woman show up in, in that in that genre. When you get into detective fiction, um, uh, a female writers are far more common as as they are today. Uh, and in fact, one of the interesting thing about uh, about the pulps was they really calibrated the maleness or the femaleness of the fiction, if you will. So you can consider on the extremes, uh, an extremely male story would be very um, violent, hard-boiled, action-oriented, whereas at the other end of the scale, a very female story would have been uh, a romance story, a love story. But in between those two, you got a lot of gradations. So, for instance, um, a in the middle, you would have a detective story with a male detective who had a girlfriend. And then the girlfriend could get into trouble, and then he could rescue her. So this was intended to appeal to both male uh, and female audiences. And the publishers were were really looking at these these issues all the time because if you um, if you painted your target audience too small, you just weren't going to make any money. Uh, we see this in the um, in the in the films too in the 30s. Uh, 
even when you had a male-oriented story, you had a female character, you know, Tarzan and Jane, and that gave both um, genders a reason to follow uh, that fiction. And there was an entire genre uh, that sprung up in the 20s of Western romance uh, fiction. And the Westerns were really, really popular then. Um, But the first magazine in that genre, in fact, was uh, started under the auspices of uh, Harold Hersey, I believe. And it was called Ranch Romances. So they were Western stories with strong female characters and often female lead characters and and women involved in romance as well as action. So yeah, you get that whole spectrum and that kind of careful calibration of uh, male versus female elements and stories. There was also the thinking that um, in a short story, say 5,000 words, there wasn't enough space for having the two plot threads. One, the plot thread of the, the main action of the story, and second, the relationship between a man and a woman. But when you got to the novelette length, 20,000 words and above, you had to have both male and female to give you enough uh, plot elements for the length. And in fact, you do tend to find that in Margie's stories. Uh, so the I, I, read, I reread a few of those this week. Um, and the first one in the collection was called Cougar Kitty. And it's uh, the lead character is a woman. Uh, she shows up at a gangster nightclub in Seattle and um, kind of horns her way into the business and starts running the show. And meanwhile, people start getting murdered off in really entertaining ways. And it turns out that she was on a revenge mission to uh, get back at gangsters who had destroyed her family uh, back east. Um, So, yeah, that's an example of... uh, uh, one female character, and also suggestions of uh, romantic interest along the way. Yes, I w- <laughs> that story was, I thought that was a lot of fun, right? Like this Absolutely. whole, she's going to come in. And I'm like, <laughs> this is great. And, <laughs> and and so it made me also, one of the questions I had was, so you, you talked about how you read a number of these, and then you, like there's eight stories in this collection. Um, so were you trying to get sort of a variety of examples of her writing? As you said, a lot of them are longer pieces than you would normally expect, you know, throughout this collection as well. Um, so were you, when in picking these, what did you sort of want to highlight? And like, I don't know if there's one or two you want to sort of talk about or a couple you want to talk about to sort of show that range of her work or what you were trying to get at? Sure. Um, We were looking for uh, the most smoothly written and entertaining stories because sometimes the, the prose in those magazines could be kind of rough in that they're just lurching from plot element to plot element without 
really smooth transitions and you kind of have to go back and reread things to uh, to get your bearings straight. That's generally not her problem uh, as a writer. Um, so we were looking for stories that had good plots and also um, a richness in language. And you probably noticed, Rebecca, she could be really funny at times, just her way of wording things and the sarcastic things that the gangsters say to each other or cougar uh, kitties put downs of the gangsters, which, um, you know, kind of brings them up and they're thinking, what's going on here? I thought I was in charge. Uh, Very funny stuff. Um, Use of language, really wonderful. Um, At one point in that story, she says, as the hostess in this uh, nightclub, uh, a new customer is coming in, and she says, uh, uh, "Come on in, where the the water is wet, and we don't have any." <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> you can only order hard liquor here because <laughs> that's the kind of place we are. <laughs> um, so yeah, that one's very that one's very entertaining. And if we could have done the whole book with uh, female lead characters, we would have done it that way. But um, that didn't turn out to be possible. Most of her stories had male leads, which is uh, consistent with that genre. Uh, But another one was called uh, The Angel from Hell, which is in our our collection. And uh, And The Angel from Hell is a gangster named Angel Refkuski. He he's Polish, and you find a lot of ethnic categorization in these stories too. Uh, to put it mildly, there's a lot of ethnic slurs that go back and forth. Uh, everyone's defined by their their ethnic background. The Italian is a wop. Uh, the Jewish character is a kike, and 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 you know goes downhill from there. Uh, but in The Angel from Hell, uh, Angel Refkuski is a, is a Polish character, and he's in this big, uh, he's in this conflict with a mob boss who's trying to kill him. So Angel is trying to get him first, and Angel has uh, a girlfriend who's caught a, sort of caught in the middle and then we, when you get to the very end of the story, you realize she actually is the pivotal character because she's moved the chess pieces so that they both end, both the mob boss and her boyfriend end up dead. And, you know, she's 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 left with the, the peaceful situation. Uh, that was that was a very fun story. Um Another one is called While Choppers Roared, and choppers uh, would mean a machine gun. Um, In those days, it was a Thompson submachine gun or a Tommy gun, you know, the famous one you've seen in The Untouchables or wherever with the round round cylinder under the barrel, which, which has all the bullets. And... The big set piece in that story is uh, uh, a giant battle inside a, a warehouse between gangsters and cops, and it could easily be the Battle of Stalingrad. It's it's so vicious. They're just trying to 
uh, absolutely annihilate each other, which means shooting through walls and, and um, you know, using bodies for cover and, and all the rest of it. Um, so I read, I reread the- <laughs> those three, but yeah, go ahead, Rebecca. Oh, no, I was going to say, like, as you talk about it, what, what's interesting to me is that, yes, yeah, some of the slurs were, would probably not be um, ones that we would use today, but there's some kind of timelessness in, in some of the, you know, some of this, it reminds me of the, you know, movies my my teenage son wants to watch and, and this whole, like, gangster thing that it just, it relates to um, not only some of the more popular fiction, but television as well. There's there's a lot of visuals. It, like for me, I could very much visualize some of these stories and, uh-huh. and and see this like playing out on a screen, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's sort of there's a, I like also there's a slight political undertone to it, which is that. This is the world that Prohibition made. Uh, Prohibition uh, gave these uh, lowlifes a business to be involved in. And so they grew these criminal empires to, to conduct this business. And this is the world you made with your hyper-moralistic uh, Prohibition law. So just having these stories, which are set in the world of gangsters and are not the civilized community, as it were, is outside of the world of these stories. So just by their very nature, they're 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 throwing the effects of prohibition back into the the faces uh, of society. Um, so that's an interesting thing. Although in in general the stories did not have a political content, you do have cops in the uh, in the story. Sometimes you don't have them at all, but when you do have them, they're they're either an annoyance uh, or someone you bribe <laughs> to get rid of. So they're kind of. Uh, they've got a foot in both the the gangster world and the civilized world. Um, all part of that kind of overtone of of you know this is the nightmare you've created with uh, prohibition. And that seems to be something. It, is she, maybe I should ask it this way, is she unique in that, in the genre, or is she sort of building off of what others in the genre were already doing, right? You know, with the, did you see with this gangster fiction, besides her prose, and was she bringing something else into the gangster fiction genre that really hadn't been there or wasn't highlighted? Well, she got in very early. So the, the, um, first issues of gangster stories and racketeer stories were right at the tail end of 1929, and her first uh, story was published in the May, uh, May 1930 issue of uh, Gangster. So really, she had caught wind of these magazines very early on, and probably said, and this was 
a way a lot of writers got in in the business those days. They picked up a magazine, said, this looks like fun, read it and said, I could do a lot better than this. <laughs> and so she 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 enters the um she enters the magazines early. And in fact, uh she was better than most of the writers and so had a guaranteed income for a while. Uh she was probably, I'm guessing, getting a uh penny a word. So for a twenty thousand word story, she'd be getting two hundred dollars which was a nice chunk of change there at the uh, uh, beginning of the uh, of the depression. Um, did she add anything new? Uh, the genre of the gangster stories seems it's, I think they, they ran their course after two and two or three years because they're so self-contained in the gangster world that you kind of burn out on them after a while. You don't get the varieties, say you get in uh, detective fiction, which can be, it can be anywhere. It can have any kind of characters, all sorts of different plots. The gangster stories were all about revenge, um, the bootlegging business, uh, gangs fighting it out, gangs shooting uh cops you know the uh, but a very kind of a limited set of things you could do and so yeah there wasn't a lot of room for her to step in and say expand the genre um uh so i, I wouldn't say she did that but she was a an excellent uh practitioner of the genre um along with another writer, a Chicago playwright named Anatole Feldman. Uh, he was another writer who the gangster stories, uh, the gangster genre gave a, a, um, a platform to. And his stuff is wonderful too. He and I put he and Margie on the same level as being the top of that genre, uh, both writing, uh, the novelettes with good plots, uh, very creative, uh, uh, colorful use of language, very entertaining storytellers. Um, so yeah, I put those two at at the top of uh, the genre, but I'm not sure that the genre allowed a lot of creativity in the long run. Does that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. And you actually that one of the questions I did have was sort of who else would you right suggest or um, to someone who's interested in looking at this sort of gangster fiction from the pulps. And so that's that's perfect. Oh, OK. Well, then we did. Um, I can tell you about my Anatole Feldman series. Go ahead. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, because I was going to ask if there's other. So we could let we can let's talk about that, and then I wanted to ask you another. But yeah, so I, one of the questions I had that so moves into this perfectly is that um, that idea of like what other pulps are right. So we've got Margie Harris, but there's other other folks out there too. So yeah, can you talk about that? series yeah anatole feldman had a um a series character named a chicago gangster named big nose serrano so he's obviously italian uh 
But the first one that made a hit with the readers was a takeoff of Cyrano de Bergerac, which is where you get Big Nose Serrano from. And uh, he ended up, uh, I think there were about 13 of those, uh, all longish novelettes. And Will Murray and I uh, put them all out in a series of uh, three books. And really, that's the first time they'd been reprinted since uh, the early 30s. And they're they're good, well-plotted stories, very entertaining, all the colorful language. And they also do have... uh, uh, some political content uh, uh, late in the series. Um, Big Nose runs for for mayor uh, of Chicago, so you get into all the the situations of how the ward bosses operate and how how the levers of power operate in uh, that kind of old time big city politics, which we used to have in the U.S. Yes, and I, I mean I'm not in Chicago, but being in Illinois and knowing the the strong connections that Chicago has to that sort of gangster history, the prohibition, and the importance of sort of that with um, Chicago and access to waterways to get alcohol places that needed to go, um, yeah, so that would be really interesting as well to sort of see how that plays out or is laid out in these. Yeah, and there's stories. another. There's another interesting angle with the um, gang pulps, because when they first came on the market, uh, they were a shock to people that you could, because by making the the, the gangsters the lead characters uh, and not the villains, as it were, you've, you've glorified the gangsters. And that was a time of heavy prohibition. Uh, in the movies, as we know, you know, the pre-code era and, and so forth. Um, so you you cannot um, you cannot prohibit fiction in general, but in New York State, uh, there was an organization called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And the... Um, the head of that organization could um, recommend obscenity cases to the uh, the prosecutors, and because that was New York City was the seat of publication, that group had a lot of power, and so their tentacles got into uh, James Joyce. It also got into uh, magazines that were classified as obscene. And so there was early on in the gangster pulp era, um, the 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 uh, the censors came to Hersey and said, "Hey, you cannot have stories where the gangster has benefited from crime at the end of the story." And so Hersey made a big hue and cry over cleaning it up and had a series of editorials uh, in gangster stories, which were as colorfully written as the stories themselves, you know, making great speeches about the scourges of crime and 
uh, how these um, how these uh, this vermin must be cleansed from society uh, and so forth. And I think he waited until the uh, censors kind of lost interest and uh, then went back to business. <laughs> It sounds very similar to some of the comic book um, issues, the issues with comics, right? And, in the fifties, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cleaning them up for American youth. Yeah, uh, or, yes, or the way Hollywood uh, <laughs> dealt with it. You know, they had the great gangster <laughs> movies, which I fell in love with as a kid. You know, Public Enemy and so forth, and there was a big hue and cry over that. So with the movie G Men in. 1935, which was a Cagney movie. Cagney is no longer a gangster. He's now an FBI guy. But the action content of the movies is the same. It's machine gun battles between good guys and bad guys. (laughs) Only the point of view has just shifted over to the good guys. Right. Yes. We can have the same content. We're just going to make it. Yeah. Different. Yeah. We'll put and, this and, gloss and over it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and we'll just say that the good guys are like yeah, the G-men. Yeah. And who's going to complain <laughs> the, about the tactics of the G-men? Hey, you're a good American. You know, you'd yes, like them exactly, to wipe out right? crime however it takes. <laughs> about sort of this collection is it looks you have um images throughout it looks like they're i can't tell if they're woodcuts or if they're pencil pen and ink drawings so i was just wondering if those were original from the the um, pulps or where those came from that are at the beginning of each chapter yeah those are the illustrations that were in the magazines Uh, most pulps were illustrated and uh, in some cases, uh, have some very fine illustrators. Like I have a, a few illustrations in here from Tom Lovell, and he became a very prominent uh, fine artist. I think you can you can spend forty grand for a, an original Tom Lovell oil painting, but this would have been when he was a young man. And so there, it's line art or just. Uh, 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 ink, uh, ink on paper, and that was the best quality that could be reproduced in the pulp magazines, because they were intended to be a cheap kind of disposable product. So they uh, used the cheapest uh, form of paper, which was pulp paper, which is where the magazines get their name. But it's it's uh, it's rough paper. It's kind of um, you can see the fibers in it so you cannot uh print photographic quality uh, material on it but you could do this nice line art very well and uh they're very evocative and um uh very collectible items too if you can find those uh uh original artworks and people do find them uh from time to time a friend of mine had uh, a few um interior illustrations. He knew they were from the Underworld magazine, which was a competitor to Hersey's magazines. Uh, and he, he actually was able to identify the magazines they came from, even though the magazines are really rare these days. 
So with this art, did um because you talk about sometimes the what was the art labeled as well? Like were the artists listed and known uh, to the reader, or was the art sort of second? I don't secondary is not the right word I want, but right was was the art as prominent during the time of the magazines as it is maybe now becoming more prominent or more collectible? It really varied in those days. Um, In some cases, the artist got no credit, say, on the uh, table of contents. And you may or may not see um, a signature on the artwork itself. Um, Another magazine, like uh, Weird Tales, which is one of the most famous of of the pulps, um, their artists were very prominent, had kind of a fine art quality to them. And that was true both of the the cover illustrators um, and the interior illustrators. And yeah, those things are are, are highly collectible. And there's a huge market for those. In fact, there's a, a pulp convention every year in Chicago called the Windy City Convention, which unfortunately was canceled this year. But that's kind of like ground zero for the trade in, in the original artwork. Uh, but yeah, many of the, the artists were very prominent. And one of the Weird Tales artists was uh, Jay Allen St. John, and he did dust wrapper paintings for prominent books like Edgar Rice Burroughs stories. And he was uh, very high up at the Chicago Institute of Art. Uh, you also have some famous artists like N.C. Wyeth that did um, cover paintings uh, uh, for the pulps. And then many artists who who made their names doing uh, art in the pulps and then went on to other things. Some of them went on to comic books. Um, and then some of them remain sadly anonymous. You see a piece of artwork and you try and identify it. And maybe you can see other pieces that are clearly from the same artist and none of them have a signature on them. And I guess it's all a matter of what the publishers thought the, uh, the readers needed. Right. And did the publishers, so one, another question I had around sort of Margie Harris and her work and this sort of work in the pulps is, did, did the publishers go to, let's say Margie and say, Hey, we're looking for a piece about X. Um, or was it very much, I'm going to submit, I'm going to write whatever I want and submit it and then sort of see whether they want to, take that um, story or not? It was more the second. For the most part, the, uh, the pulps were a freelance market. Um, so they would take submissions from, from anyone, either through the mail or through an agent. But then once the, the, the writer had an identifiable name with the readers, they would they might put them on kind of an informal contract, you know, just send us everything you've got and we'll pay you, you X. Uh, and then in, in cases like the, the hero pulps as they're called where you had monthly stories, 
or, or bi-monthly stories featuring characters like The Shadow or Doc Savage, those articles would those those authors would actually be on contract, but mostly a freelance market, which made it a great kind of wild west for for writers. Uh, and then the writers' magazines in those times became de facto um, industry magazines for the pulp business because there was so much. Uh, so much action, so much opportunity there. And then to, to give you an idea of the, the, the size of the opportunity, uh, at the peak of the pulp market, you had maybe 40 different magazines every month that were all fiction. And they, were, they range from 128 pages to some of them would be twice as long, 256 pages, so do the math on that 40 times 200. That is a lot of content to fill. So a lot of opportunities. And so people were submitting stuff from, uh, uh, from all over. And I'm going to guess then the readership was also really high. Um, if, if you're producing 40 magazines that are getting this, was that a lot of... Um, subs- was this very much subscription or newsstand or a, a sort of a mixture of both? Or did they have a really strong sort of following and base that just returned every month? It was uh, predominantly newsstand, at least 95%. You could order subscriptions to the magazines, but that wasn't uh, the rule. And I think a lot of people didn't lo- the, the magazines would get damaged in the mail, so that wasn't a popular option. That's different than, say, the Saturday Evening Post uh, or Liberty or the other famous slicks uh, with all the big color ad- advertisements. Those were on – the money was much bigger there, um, uh, so a lot of that was was on subscription, and the magazines were essentially subsidized by their advertising budgets. The pulps were not. They had some advertising, but it was stuff like, um, you know, manuals on hypnosis or, 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 or marriage manuals or cheap handguns or kind of disreputable products that you would see in the back of the magazine. So they had to make they had to make their money off of newsstand sales. And gangster stories, I would say at their at their peak of popularity, they would probably print a hundred thousand copies for the newsstands and hope to sell fifty to sixty thousand and then the other forty to 50 would be returns when the uh, the newsstand vendors would just rip off the covers and send them back as, as proof that they had unsold copies. And then you could make money uh, at that level. I've heard that some publishers made money by selling as little as, say, 30 to 35% of the copies put on newsstands. You know, and the distributors got a cut and, and so forth. Um, 
So yeah, all the money was on newsstand sales. And so the magazines were on really tight budgets. Your budget for an issue of gangster stories might have been a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars. Out of that, you had to pay the authors and, and the artists, um, and and get the thing get the thing printed. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking about this for a while. So I'm wondering if you have, and so this book um, has been out for. Almost ten years now, right? Yeah. Um, when it was first put out, so it's been out a while. So, do you want to talk about anything that you have that your um, sort of publishing house has put out more recently around these pulps that people might be interested in knowing about and reading about um, in your collections? Well, yeah, I have um, my uh, my publishing imprint is Off Trail Publications. And that does not refer to uh, uh, horseback riding or mountain bike riding. <laughs> in, in, in the magazine days, an off-the-trail story was a story that the magazine didn't typically publish. So, say for instance, if a gang, a gang, gangster story magazine had published a fantasy story, which they never did. But if they did, they might say, "Here, we, here's an off-trail story that we think you'd enjoy. <laughs> so I, I pluck that term for my publishing imprint because pretty much everything I do is, is off the trail, uh, even for the pulps in, in many cases. So I put out a bunch of books from about uh, 2006 when I started doing it uh to around 2012 and then my work situation changed i uh, i was working more and i i got hammered there i just didn't have the the brain cells left over to do it uh however 2 years ago i um i wrote my first book that is wrote the book from beginning to end and it was a it's a history of the first 2 years of weird tales magazine uh, 1923 to 24, and it was um, a story of incredible turmoil within the business. It's a great backstory of the business, and I think it's probably the longest true story set in the world of uh, uh, pulp publishing that's been written. And it's called the uh, the the things incredible, the secret. Uh, origins of weird tales and i wrote that it took me a year spending every weekend holiday and day off uh for a year it was a really intense i just went great guns all the way to the end and it was so much fun (laughs) putting those stories together (laughs) it's great detective work finding all the clues and trying to assemble them and, and figuring out what happened just like i did with margie harris and I would say we, we tend to want to call Margie Harris um, a mystery woman, but actually I would put her, uh, I would rate her medium or in the middle as to how much material was able to be found out about her background. Because some pulp writers leave, have left virtually no paper trail and truly are mysterious. Whereas others, um, 
you can find a wealth of, of, of information about. And so she's in the low middle range. It kind of got the outline of who she is and just simply hit the wall at that point and can't find out anymore. But the, the detective mm-hmm. work is really fun. It's really fun digging into the background of that world, which, you know, doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Right. Yes. And she's sort of, it's, it's, yes, to me, it's really fascinating too, because there seems to be so much more, uh, I feel, you know, when you read these stories and my guess is with some of these other writers that their actual life is probably just as fascinating as some of the stories they've written. Right. And um, there's gotta be connections that they have in order to be able to produce such vivid and realistic uh, stories about the gangster world. Yeah, that's what you wonder about Margie Harris, because she, when she was talking about her, say, her San Francisco story, uh, news reporting, she was talking about the famous criminals that she had interviewed while they were on death row. That is, they were waiting for, as she calls it, the hot squat, <laughs> the electric chair. <laughs> So, yeah, she got to know some of these people, and these were like the O.J. Simpsons of the time. They wouldn't be well-remembered today. Um, And then with the Chicago mobsters uh, from the early 20s, some of those were very famous figures in Chicago. And so she was saying that she was very connected to the world of criminals, and you wonder just how well did she know them. Did she know them enough? to hang out in their nightclubs and hear them talk about the life. Where did she pick up the lingo? You know, all of those questions are really tantalizing. And I just have a feeling we're not going to find answers to those because she didn't write, (laughs) she didn't write the answers down and we're not going to be able to find them coming from abstract directions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. But yeah, so it's this sort of, um, it's really fascinating to try and figure out or to try and think about where they have, like they gained the knowledge that they, they did and write these writers and especially her with um, some of this language and lingo and, and these ideas. So it's been, did, it's great. Did you have any favorite terms that popped up, Rebecca? You know, I don't know if it were favorite terms as much. I have to say that I really, um, my like in reading them, it was Cougar Kitty because she was so hilarious and like she was so savvy to the fact like there was one point where she was being followed and she was sort of like she paid the um, the driver, the cab driver, money to like lose her, you know, the guy followed uh-huh. her. Like so, there was her as a character. I was just like, yes, you go. <laughs> and then there was a point where I'm like, she had to have, like, she was the one who, ki- like, she she had to have killed them. So that made me happy, too, because she was sort of like, hey, I'm getting away with this, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Yes, yes. So. <laughs> the glorification of crime. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I like the oh, but, all the different yeah. terms for, for women in those days. Uh, and the, the one that's probably still known today as mall m-o-l-l a gun mall who was a gangster's Mm -hmm. girlfriend and there was actually a magazine called gun malls magazine super rare but it was all stories about with female lead characters but another term was uh 
a calling a woman a twist, which it seems real evocative, but you're going, I don't know exactly what they meant by that. And then, and then another good one was, was calling them frails. And when you see the, mm-hmm. the women of the time pictured, they were really, really thin. And it's sort of, well, was that the look of the time? Or were they not eating enough because it was the, the depression? But the, the depression, term frail it, kind mm, of kind of pulls all that together. Right. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I mean, it's just it's fun. And it's just for me as a female and reading this makes me ha- like just thinking about this woman sitting there writing these stories. Like, you know, it's she's she seems like I'm like, I would hang out with her. I want to. <laughs> I know where she's hanging out because um, <laughs> yeah. she's got to, ha- you know, like she's got to be having some fun. Yes, definitely. During this time. <laughs> and making money. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and that's the other thing, like, you know, it, like to be able to write like this and it seems like she has traveled around that, you know, I wonder just sort of what her life was like to be, it seems like she was very free to be able to move from different from city to city to city um and so that's really interesting as well to, to think about I, those yeah, things i would guess that because the fact that she started publishing at the novel at length uh suggests that she paid her dues as a writer somewhere else so that dovetails with her claims to have been a reporter um and I would guess that uh, as a writer, she sketched out kind of a, a quickie plot on a piece of paper and then just sat down at a typewriter, putting in one sheet after another, and wrote the story from beginning to end with no revisions. Um, at the amount of money they were paying, there was not enough time to polish something up to become that nice you know, that nice, many-faceted jewel we like to see in fiction. But she was pretty close. She was she could write polished prose probably just sitting at a typewriter. And the best pulp writers could do that. Mm-hmm. Which is important to remember that, you know, we don't have that the tools that we have today to be able to return and to edit, and they she didn't have, right? So, so she was knocking these out and really really thinking about the craft and what she was doing. No. And in fact, if you had, say, if she had typed a 20-page manuscript and uh, if she went through and saw that she made word choice, punctuation, or other errors along the way, she would just repair them in pencil because to retype that whole manuscript, that might be you know, two, three hours of labor, and then, and then you're squandering your profit essentially by doing that over. Uh, and then you would send the the original manuscript to the um, publisher, but you would keep the um, the carbon copy because if that thing got lost in the mail, that was it. Right. <laughs> it was gone forever. <laughs> uh, okay. 
I know it's these things when you start to think about that, you know, you start to realize just uh, some of the some of the things that we have we take for granted today, right? Uh, when it comes to writing and editing and publishing, that was not always the case. Yeah, and in those days, a typewriter was actually a luxury item. You know, a lot of writers would have liked to have just written their fiction in longhand and sent it in uh, and not have to go buy a typewriter. But for the publishers, that was, you know, one of the uh, that was the the that was part of the cost of entry. You had to have a typewriter. And and for most people, it was the manual typewriter, you know, those those big black jobs, although they were getting more streamlined at that time. Now, if you were really making money at it, you could have bought an electric. And then that was, you know, <laughs> that was the elite of the writing uh, class was to have an electric typewriter. <laughs> yeah, we're so spoiled you today. You know you really made it. <laughs> yeah. <Yes. laughs> well, it's been, we've been talking for a while. It's been really great to talk with you about uh, Margie Harris and Pulps and all that. Again, this was um, John Locke who uh, wrote, put together the edited volume Queen of the Gangsters Stories by Margie Harris, uh, volume one, Borbrock Empire, as well as some other great pulp books. Um, so, John, it was, thank you so much for talking with me for New Books Network. Oh, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's uh, it's been a pleasure, a lot of fun talking about uh, uh, gang pulps and the mysterious Margie and <laughs> that whole world. Yeah, what a great world! Yes. Yeah, 